Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Today, we are doing something a little bit differently. This past week, I was at the Geothermal Rising Conference. It was held in San Diego, California, and I wanted to give everybody a my recap of the conference and it's not necessarily a state of the industry for geothermal, but I think it's important to to discuss what is going on in the geothermal space and to to give to give you the audience an idea of of what what I'm really trying to do, what what we're talking about with energy transition and and just kind of open up those doors and open up those ideas of of where are we going in a specific a specific industry that being geothermal so let me give you a little bit of the background on geothermal rising geothermal rising is the is the US association for the geothermal community. Originally, it was called the Geothermal Resources Council. And about two years ago now, there was a, either a year or two years ago, there was this rebranding from the Geothermal Geothermal Resources Council to Geothermal Rising. The reason for this rebranding is that it, and this, I'm going to have hopefully somebody on to really talk about the rebranding, but this is from my my perspective. The reason that the GRC went through this rebranding is because we are geothermal resources, but it's important to remember that geothermal power, geothermal energy is rising up out of the earth. It is always there. It is always on, and it's always present, pushing its way up out of the earth, being there for us, waiting to be utilized so that we can have this always-on, firm energy source that is also flexible and can be ramped up or ramped down depending on, depending on need. So the... That and the the original GRC logo, it was it was a lightning bolt through kind of a, a circular emblem, and that wasn't necessarily all encompassing on what geothermal is, which I'll talk touch on later on. 
but it, it really focused on the electricity aspect of geothermal energy. And it didn't, it wasn't all encompassing in the heating applications of geothermal energy or the storage applications of geothermal energy. So it was important to, to have this, at least my understanding is that the, the idea was to really be more inclusive of the entire geothermal community and then also have something that was, that was more of a modern symbol of what geothermal is. So the branding, now the, the group is called, the association is called Geothermal Rising instead of the Geothermal Resources Council. One thing that I think was very, very clever with the branding, and I don't know if this is a, I don't know if this was intentional. I'm, a, I'm sure it was, but by changing it to Geothermal Rising, and then you have the Geothermal Rising Conference, which is the annual conference, you can still refer to it as the GRC. So that way you're referring to the specific conference, not necessarily the, the organization. And I still, because the annual conference is what most people go to, I always say, are you going to the GRC? Not, are you going to the Geothermal Rising Conference? So I think that was very clever on, on our, our group's part. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Geothermal Rising Conference. This is the annual conference where all of the geothermal folks, mostly, mostly North America and Central and South America, but this is a, it's an international conference. We do talk about international international projects. So it's really an international meeting that ultimately has a focus on on the US, Canada, Mexico, and, and Central and South America. And it is a it is both a conference and a trade show. So we we cover pretty high level topics and 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 also get down into the weeds of specific geothermal projects. It it's a lot of fun whether you are an academic you can go and learn why a specific area such as the basin and range has so many geothermal systems and and what we're doing to find new systems but then it's also a a it's great for industry in that with the expo you can go and if you have a an issue such as one one group was was showing their their packers and these are permanent packers they can get put in place that have I, I think the rating was 500 degrees celsius so if you're having issues with packers staying at high temperatures you can go and find a solution to that specific problem in your production stream so i think it's a very all-encompassing conference that they're really helps you both solve real real production solutions but also you can go and learn more about these resources that you're producing so let's talk about specific kind of big ideas big takeaways that i got from 
the conference this year. One thing to to note, last year, obviously, there was not an in-person conference. This year, the conference was both in-person and online. The, the attendance was, given that COVID, it had good attendance. The geothermal industry or geothermal community is has a, a large component of of federal input, federal employees, and also from from um, also a large group of academic community members. <clears throat> because of this large group of federal employees and academic industry members, the the attendance was it was clear that there was a a large cohort missing but despite that there were still a lot of new faces and and a lot of energy and still quite a bit of people in attendance i think that that shows just how resilient geothermal is it's almost a a show of the the always-on nature of geothermal, the fact that we had so many people attending this conference, even though it was in the in the tail end of this pandemic, and even though the government and many, many universities were still not allowing people to travel, there was still, it still felt like almost a normal conference. The people that were in attendance, the first the first group I wanted to talk about were the students. Now, students have I've been in the geothermal community for a little over ten years now, and students have always been one of those groups that have been difficult to get to the conference, even when even when they're presenting their work. And then it's 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 always a challenge because most students would would prefer to go to something like the Geological Society of America or the American Geophysical Union and go there to present their work. Whereas the GRC, it is because it is this kind of mesh of academia and industry, it it's always had a kind of a, a hard pull to get people from either side. So I was pleasantly surprised this year when I saw I saw a lot of students. There were there were students from the traditional universities that have geothermal, that being Stanford, SMU, University of Nevada Reno, and University of North Dakota. But then there were there were students that were both international students. There were students from Oklahoma University and students from University of Pittsburgh, Mississippi, Oklahoma State University. So the the diversity of students is is very refreshing to see. There's a few one one of the issues with geothermal traditionally was that it was geographically constrained because geothermal is the heat coming up out of the ground 
most people think about the electricity aspect. So most geothermal systems at this time are, are along the ring of fire. For us, that would be the West Coast and then into Nevada, the basin and range. The having students coming from places like University of Pittsburgh, Oklahoma, Mississippi, this is broadening the the students studying geothermal, which means it is it is getting us that first step outside of the geographic constraints of the geothermal industry. First, we get our students and our 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 people looking beyond beyond the basin and range, beyond the the ring of fire and start asking why can't we do geothermal say east of the Mississippi. That will be a this growth that is occurring is going to ultimately make geothermal a household name, start growing it into traditionally non-geothermal production areas. And that that was really exciting for me to see that. On that idea, the other group of people that I was seeing that was was really exciting is that the entire geothermal community was present. Now, what do I mean by entire geothermal community? Well, we need to break down what is the geothermal community first. And really what what that is, is what types of geothermal are there that are in production. So there are three main types. There is geothermal heat pumps, which is basically a heating and cooling system utilizing the uppermost layers of the earth to heat and cool buildings. Some people call it passive geothermal because really what you're doing is you're utilizing the earth as almost a thermal battery to then give you that that heating and cooling when you need it. The other part of the industry, moving up in temperature a little bit, is direct use. So direct use is taking the heat from the earth, directly applying that to a heating load where you need to warm something up, an industrial heating load where you may be using the heat to to do something like, like uh, controlled climate agriculture or maybe food drying or running a keeping aquaculture at a constant temperature. And then the, the part that most people think about and most people know about is the electricity aspect. Once we get hot enough, we can utilize that heat to then generate electricity. Basically, the, the idea is that heat can ultimately turn to steam, whether through a working fluid or directly. That steam spins a turbine. That turbine generates electricity through that spinning, and then you can sell that electricity. The traditionally at the GRC, there has been a heavy focus on electricity. There's there have always been some people focused on direct use applications, 
And there has been a very, very small group, at least for the past 10 years, a very small group talking about the geothermal heat pumps. It, it's important and really refreshing that everybody was there this year. Because one thing that most people don't know is that our, our heating and cooling of buildings ends up as one of the major energy uses that we have today. Because that's such a major energy use, it ends up being a very large greenhouse gas emitter. And if we can decarbonize heating and cooling, that would be a significant change for our for our carbon footprint. Now the much of the US is heated by either heating oil or by natural gas. If we start to transition off of heating oil or natural gas, transition to either direct use geothermal or what is available everywhere, these geothermal heat pumps, that would be a natural transition away from a carbon source and to a, a more low carbon uh, a low carbon energy. And that's something that that doesn't get talked about much and really hasn't had that that focus at at the GRC before. And thinking about why, I've I've, I've tried to come up with reasons why this may be and ultimately I think I kept coming back to geothermal heat pumps and direct use they aren't sexy that's I think that's the problem they just are not those aren't the those aren't the cool parts of the geothermal industry electricity like everybody knows electricity it's cool it's there turns light bulbs on but heating and cooling I mean if you're if you're uncomfortable in your house you get a little upset and you go to the thermostat and change the temperature but then you don't think about it again you don't think about it until there's a problem whereas the electricity that is that really can change the mood if you've ever been hanging out in your backyard and it's around sunset, the sun's going down and then all of a sudden you plug in those string lights, you've completely changed the mood just by utilizing electricity. And I think that is, that is why we don't think about these ground source heat pumps or the geothermal heat pumps and the, and the direct use of geothermal. But it's so important because of the carbon emissions for heating and cooling of buildings. So that was a a major shift from, I would say, pre-pandemic and changing the rebranding of geothermal rising to now we, we almost are inclusive of the entire industry, whereas I didn't see that 10 years ago. And that's a it's very refreshing and it just goes to show the the idea of of collaborating 
and of pulling ideas from each other and growing the industry in really in any way we can. The other idea that I saw with this going on the fact that everybody was there was collaboration. As I've said before, collaboration is one of those one of those things that excites me the most. Collaboration is really where where we start advancing ideas and start pushing forward. This is where the where we see where we see new innovations occurring in offshore offshore oil and gas. These are new innovations where we see see transitions and change happening in geothermal where we see the the ability to start blending gases in in natural gas turbines so there's a lot of a lot of really really great collaborations occurring in geothermal right now one that i will highlight very high level right now is Baker Hughes and Alter Rock Energy. So people may have seen a a press release going out that there was a a large study done by Alter Rock Energy, Oklahoma University, and Baker Hughes. And the this was on the Newberry volcano. This was talked about quite a bit at the GRC. The idea, Newberry Volcano, is this is this super hot rock, right? It is a, it is in the Cascades, so it is part of the Cascadia volcanic zone or volcanic arc, and it has it has an immense amount of heat in place. The problem, though, is that there's really not much water there, so there's no way to move that heat from in the subsurface up to the surface. This could be the single largest geothermal resource in the U.S., but there's no way to get it out of the ground. And this is something that Alterock has been working on since before I was, I was in the geothermal community, so over 10 years. And, and it's one of those that is... It, when we look back on it, it's one that we really, really want to succeed. It's one of those wins that, that the geothermal community is waiting for. But it, it's always just been just out of reach. Every time there's a new technology, it's like, oh, maybe this is what's going to make Newberry work. And I think now... <laughs> I think that we've finally gotten to that point where we could make Newberry work. And it was because of, frankly, because of the ability to have these very high level or very, very deep models and doing a a 3D time dependent thermal model that starts looking at, at all of the different aspects of what it would take to produce produce energy from Newberry Volcano. And I think that was only possible because of combining the different 
the different pieces of Oklahoma University, of Alta Rock Energy, and of Baker Hughes, putting them together to finally run these models and really think through it. Because no one group had the complete expertise or the complete knowledge to to really build these models. Whereas now we've got we've got these new results that say Newberry Volcano, yeah, we know it's hot down there. And in fact now if we if we do these few other things, we can produce this new energy we're calling super hot rock and and actually be competitive with with any with any electricity source out there. And I think that is that is a testament to the collaborative effort and collaborative nature of geothermal, but also the the need for collaboration today as we look for new energy sources and new ideas to help decarbonize our society. Now talking about that super hot rock, I I discussed that that really brought about another big idea that is the idea of conventional geothermal and here we're talking about just well we're talking about all geothermal so conventional geothermal versus unconventional geothermal traditionally this was um, called traditional geothermal or hydrothermal versus enhanced geothermal systems and it was very originally it was it was more specific where hydrothermal was any normal geothermal system where you drill a well and you can produce enough water to generate electricity. Enhanced geothermal systems were basically anything where you had to enhance the reservoir, so some type of stimulation. Nowadays, and it's important to point out that conventional geothermal systems there is still a lot of of energy left in the ground there according to the department of energy's geovision report there is potentially something around four gigawatts of geothermal energy still left in the ground now that would that would be a significant increase on the current geothermal energy production the problem with that those four gigawatts is that the majority of those are what's called blind geothermal systems which means there is no no visible surface manifestation we don't see those systems at the surface and that makes them harder to harder to find harder to drill this is another area where collaboration is important because for for a long time, the oil and gas industry has been drilling what we would call blind systems. Most oil and gas reservoirs don't have any type of surface manifestation. So this is an area where we really can take that that exploration expertise from oil and gas, apply it to geothermal to really get those improvements that we're looking for really the idea of de-risking finding those four gigawatts. So that's conventional geothermal. One of the big ideas and what is helping grow our geographic footprint 
is the idea of unconventional geothermal systems. Now, I say unconventional to be a, a larger grouping of basically anything that is not the conventional hydrothermal system. So when I say unconventional, I mean things such as closed-loop geothermal systems, enhanced geothermal systems, super-hot rock geothermal systems, and then what I'm calling these integrated power systems. The Typically, I guess when I started in geothermal over about 10 years ago, there was the hydrothermal systems and then there was the EGS systems, enhanced geothermal systems. The Today, when you go to something like the GRC, there are new ideas on how to produce those unconventional geothermal systems. We'll We'll dig into these in later podcasts, talking about kind of each specific one of these areas. But I wanted to point out that we're getting these new innovative ideas, or at least the the ability to assess these ideas are are becoming greater because of because of more advancements in technology, we can make higher level models and really start digging into the intricacies of of how you would produce these different types of resources. And I just want to point out the there's a few a few important points with each of these. So enhanced geothermal systems, this is something that has gone back and forth in terms of interest really starting in the 1970s having its having a a peak of interest in the early 2000s into the 2010s the problem is there was induced seismicity and that was that was kind of a kind of scary and that ended up dampening people's interest but today and now we're still talking about EGS now along with government funding you have to you have to include an induced seismicity mitigation plan so this is something that the that the geothermal community is actively still actively pursuing EGS and now proactively trying to mitigate its hazards and mitigate that those really more of a more of the publicity trying to cut the negative publicity off before it is before it's out there touching on closed loop geothermal systems now closed loop geothermal systems are the idea that you send a working fluid down into the subsurface all within a single well bore or a well bore that is directly connected to another wellbore. So it's all one loop. That is the closed loop part. There's no interaction with the with the surrounding subsurface rock. That, that was the traditional closed loop idea. In the past, say, five years, 
there's been an explosion of closed loop geothermal companies. The the reason for this is because if you drill one well and you can keep everything in that single well and still generate electricity, that makes it relatively easier compared to a compared to a, a traditional geothermal system where you have to where you have to drill multiple wells, where you have to produce that fluid, where you have to start worrying about where you have to start worrying about scaling and pressure losses and reinjecting all the fluid you produce. There's just a lot there's a lot less moving parts if you can do everything in a closed loop single well system. Now there is still a lot of a lot of uh, question marks if you will about closed loop systems. We all know that we're not going to break the laws of thermodynamics. So it is closed loop systems are are still are still misunderstood in in some spheres on how just how they're going to be able to generate electricity on a long-term scale. The thing though is that several of these closed loop systems have had demonstration projects. They've generated power for for months at a time and they have projects in the US coming soon in Germany and and really in other places. So while we talk about closed loop systems and and we everybody says you can't break thermodynamics there there is something that that we just don't know yet about these closed loop systems. There is some some trade secret that is working and and I I would I would say that that is going to be very interesting to find out where and how closed loop systems evolve over the next, even over the next two to five years. And then one that I've already mentioned and we'll talk about more on a future podcast, Super Hot Rock. Super Hot Rock is, is really interesting. I, when I first heard that term at the conference, I said, well, that's just EGS. Why are we calling it Super Hot Rock? Why are we creating a new acronym? And the the reasoning that I was given, and this is a, it's a very good reasoning, Super Hot Rock is, is the rock itself, superheated, and it's almost like a blank slate. You've got the heat there, You've got this, this closed system that now you can go in and you can create with pumping in your, your specific chemistry of water that you want to add. That water will create a specific, specific chemistry within the reservoir. And the important part of super hot rock is that you're dealing with multiple phases being water, steam, supercritical fluids. And because of that, it is a it is a 
entirely new beast to handle compared to something like enhanced geothermal systems where you have some native water, you have some native heat. The only problem is you can't move that water and move that heat. So you enhance the geothermal system through stimulation. So super hot rock is is this idea of not only creating the reservoir space to to extract that heat, but also creating the reservoir chemistry that gives you that gives you specific working conditions. And I think it's it's really interesting. I know I have not done a good job explaining it here. So I'm going to have I'm I've invited the people who have talked about this onto the show and hopefully we'll get them on soon. And so the last part I wanted to touch on, as I said, this this conference was was smaller because the any federal employees except for the Navy Geothermal Office the Navy Geothermal Office, I got to give them props. They made it to the conference. They sponsored. They had a booth. And I've always been impressed working with the Navy and everything they're doing to push to push geothermal into the future. But besides the Navy, no federal employees. That meant no national labs. And then no, no very few academic institutions were allowing people to travel as well. So while the conference felt, the conference had smaller attendance, but it also still felt very full, very exciting, very, very inspiring. I think this is important to point out. There were a lot of new faces at, at the GRC this year. There were a lot of new companies and a lot of, a lot of the, traditional players but it's cool to see the way that that the geothermal industry is evolving and really the way that the energy industry is evolving so i've got i've got my fat stack of cards that that i collected while i was at the conference but i just want to go through a few of these and point out the the diversity of the companies who who go who are now going to the GRC and and really let that sink in and let people think about there there are active active growth opportunities in this transition. So some of these companies are Calpine. Calpine is a they are a major player in geothermal. They run the geysers. So they're not new, but they are a they're not just a geothermal company. So I think that's important to point out that they are they are actively working in geothermal, continue to grow their geothermal sector, but they as we've said on this podcast before, this is not the energy transition is not a a single stepwise function. This is an incremental more of an integral function changing the overall energy mix over time. Some of the other interesting companies, there were there was Blade Energy Partners. Now, Blade Energy Partners have been in geothermal for a while, but many of you may know them for their work in the oil and gas industry. 
there were some some other oil and gas industry companies that that you may be familiar with. One of them was Heimrich and Payne. So they're a they're fairly large, working on kind of all things drilling. There was also Emerson Technologies. It's another one of those large companies that that is goes across industries. It's well known in oil and gas, and this is the first time I've seen them at at the GRC. And that's the same with Heimrich and Payne. The first time I've seen them at the GRC. And then there were a lot of newer companies. Now, these are the ones that I want to really talk about. There was one company called Criterion Energy Partners. These guys are and gals are really interesting in that they were originally oil and gas and and have started to make that transition into more of an integrated energy company where they are looking actively for geothermal leases, but also not necessarily turning their backs on on oil and gas. There was also a some of these closed loop companies like Green Fire Energy and then Sage Geosystems. These are new companies, some of these oil and gas related, some of them not, but ultimately all these new ideas coming up looking for ways to ways to produce this this power that is kind of everywhere we just don't necessarily have a have a a good clean way and an, a way to produce geothermal en- energy everywhere and then there were some major companies that that many of us know about companies like TGS company Schlumberger was there through their their smaller geothermal focused subsidiary Geothermics. And then there was also a company called Welltech. They're the ones with the super hot packers. And then there were representatives from companies like Chevron, Ormat, which is a large geothermal company, and and many more. So it was it was very inspiring to see not only these new companies such as Criterion and Sage and and of course Petrolearn was there. I was there representing Petrolearn. So it's very fun to see these new companies being at the Geothermal Rising Conference, but then also seeing new service companies who who have been been in oil and gas for some of them 50 years, some of them going on 100 years, depending on their the way they were bought and et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, everybody sees the, the ability of geothermal, the natural transition from oil and gas to geothermal. And people are starting to, to make that transition, starting to ask the question and, and solve the problems of how how does this work? How do we make that that clear shift? Now I do want to with that with all of that, I did want to touch on one thing. Almost the uh 
the only real negative I saw. The negative part was the idea of scaling up. So right now, there are 15 gigawatts of geothermal power in the world. As a size comparison, there's over there's about 1.1 terawatt of installed electricity capacity in the U.S. alone. So we are we're not even on the right scale in terms of of power generation. So that's a big scaling issue, and we're thinking through this with things like direct use, taking off some of that energy need. Other ideas like super hot rock and EGS to add on more electricity production in non-traditional areas. And then other ideas like integrated power systems where we add in solar. Well, most of us think about solar plus storage, that storage being batteries. But you could also use the earth as a thermal battery. So that's an idea that was kicked around, this solar plus storage, storage being the earth. And then other ways of using the earth to hold and transfer this energy. And this, these ideas open up these new markets to help that scale issue. But I think that's one of the main, the main question marks still in terms of of the oil and gas industry entering the geothermal market is how does it scale? And so this is one of those, as, as I have people on that focus on geothermal, I think that's going to be one of the main themes is how do we really scale geothermal power? Because it, I, I will say biasly that geothermal is, is the best of the renewables. It is base load. It is it is firm power that is reliable power, and it can also be scaled up and down depending on depending on the the current energy demand. But the main issue is its current geographic constraints, and that it it just doesn't scale as well as as something like solar, where you can put it pretty much anywhere. So that's one of those issues that we're, we're going to keep digging into and keep trying to figure out. And really, well, let me give you some numbers to, to put it in perspective. If we look at geothermal energy, Ormet, Ormet is one of the largest companies in geothermal energy. And they've got a market cap of, let's say, they are a little less than five billion dollars market cap so if you just think of let's think of a kind of a middle middle to to large size company like say pioneer it's pioneer resources how big do you think their market cap is so when you think about here being in dallas fort worth my first immediate thought of okay who's a who's a larger oil and gas company pioneer natural resources that's who i come up with now what do you guys think their market cap is pioneer's market cap is 47 billion dollars so that alone is approximately 10 times 
the largest company in geothermal. And that's just Pioneer. What about Exxon? What about Shell? What about Total? There's still a lot of growth that needs to occur in geothermal. And I think that is one of those big benefits that that the, the oil and gas community and the oil and gas industry can add to geothermal. Figuring out how to go from from four and a half billion market cap up to 45 billion market cap. So I'm going to leave you with that. That is going to be my last thought on the Geothermal Rising Conference. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for joining me today on on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. I know it was a little bit different, but I hope it gives you a, a new perspective on on one of these one of these key components of of the future energy mix. So if you've if you've enjoyed listening, please remember to give me that five star rating and click that follow button. And thank you to the Oil and Gas Global Network for for putting on this show. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up with keep up with the energy industry, connect with us and connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And remember, if you're in the Houston area, check out the Canon co-working space. Whenever I'm in Houston, I like to record there. I like to work there. And the Canon is also where we host our OGGN monthly energy mixers. So it's a really great location and and a really great working space. If you mention OGGN, they'll give you a free day pass, no strings attached, and then you can see what I'm talking about. So thank you again. Until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.